Wow. Uh, 2020. Um, I, I, as I sit here recording this, uh, it's December 22nd. And I think back to where I was a year ago uh, and all the, the hopes, the dreams, everything that 2020 was going to be. And uh, we got stuck with COVID. Uh, and I think that's going to be something um, we re remember for the rest of our lives, how we lived through it, how we dealt with it, all the trials and tribulations. Uh, it, it's been a wild, wild year. Uh, I, I got pushed to the breaking point back in March and April when I first hit that lockdown. And, you know, you know, I, I haven't been that bad since I, I tried to take my life at 21 in, in terms of my depression and mental illness. I was absolutely at my, my breaking point. Um, and, and then just as I started to get better, I went through a breakup uh, with, a, with, you know, a girl that uh, I really loved and that it shocked me and that put me even lower. Uh, and now, like I said, December 22nd, as I record this, you know, I came out stronger than ever and I, I've put so much work into myself and all these different things with exercising, eating better supplementation, um, and this podcast. And the funny thing about the podcast is what even earlier this year, uh, everything was done in person. And this pandemic made me transition to recording over Zoom. And it honestly was probably the best thing that could have happened to this podcast because I've been, been able to connect with people all around the world. And it's just been such an amazing experience being able to connect with them. You know, I've, I've talked with uh, Dr. Heloise Stavance from New Zealand, with Liam from Amsterdam, with Haley from Alabama, uh, Stephen from san antonio people across canada and bc like uh, tall paul from never alone and dr laura marks it's just been an incredible opportunity for my podcast and being able to connect with everybody and i've seen tremendous growth being able to do this and getting outside of the ottawa bubble we crossed over the ten thousand dollar or ten thousand download rather uh milestone uh back in late october early november and I, I wanted to put together a best of package uh, for for people who are fans of the podcast and have had so many kind messages and and things said about this podcast that you know you can relive some of the favorite moments um, and then for people who are new I mean this is a great opportunity to tune in and listen and and kind of get a sense of what this podcast is all about because so many cool thoughts and stories have been shared and uh, different points of view, which I, I so appreciate learning about and hearing from different perspectives that I just thought putting together the, the top, the best moments of 2020 was, was a, a good thing to do this year. And I, I put together uh, some, some moments from the top 10, top 10 episodes from 2020. So I mean, <laughs> Sorry for the guests that have been uh, here at the end of the year, you know, Anna Tran, um, all those sorts of people. Uh, it's you're not going to make it on because you've been, you know, Harriet Clooney, Natalie River, Sabrina and Sherelle, Mohit. Yeah, that's not going to make it on because you're more at the end of the year and didn't have a whole year of, of new discoveries and, and time. But maybe I'll make a one and put them on next year if they if it's up there. But um Here's a top 10 list, okay? Top 10 list, some some good, good moments from my favorite podcasts throughout the year. 
uh, the top 10 listened to and downloaded. So uh, I really hope you would enjoy it. Um, it's about 10 minutes-ish, 9 to really 15 minutes from each episode. Um, and I think uh, you can take a lot from it if, if you missed one. So please enjoy. Thank you for listening, for tuning in, for your comments, uh, for shares, telling your friends. It's, it's so appreciated. And it is honestly, it blows me away. And it's so humbling that this this podcast has been resonating with people and helping people through tough times and, and learning new things. So thank you. Here is the top 10 best episodes most downloaded episodes of the Life in Red podcast. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to Life in Red. All right, starting with number 10. Uh, this is a guy I went to high, oh, I was going to say high school, but university with. And uh, right at the start of the pandemic, we chatted because uh, he was trapped in South America <laughs> at the beginning of this pandemic. And he had uh, to find his way home as we navigated all the border closures and, and everything like that. So uh, this episode was a really interesting story on, on taking you inside all those things you heard on the news of people trying to get home. And uh, really kind of being on their own with people from around the world and figuring it out. So um, trapped during a pandemic. This is uh, number 10. Please give it up for my guest, Luke Carroll. It just like you were, like started panicking and having to search or did, was it you you kind of had time like, okay, let's let's go try this. Let's try this before it started getting out of hand. It started like we definitely started seeing more sign like uh whether notices uh or just like alerts about it um probably around early march um and that was when we started kind of noticing something was up like this was bigger than just um you know this is a bigger deal than we realized even if it wasn't there wasn't a lot of cases in south america but the day when stuff really started picking up quickly was definitely the day they announced it was a pandemic uh when Wu announced that um so that was that day we were in Bolivia, actually, we were right on the border town of Bolivia and Peru. And we knew right then that like, that was when stuff kind of started getting a bit concerning. And we started thinking maybe the trip was going to have to get cut short, because um, stuff was getting way more serious. And we were especially concerned because since it was declared a pandemic that day, it was the day we were crossing the border from Bolivia into Peru. And we really just didn't want to be caught in Bolivia in case they closed their borders. Um, just a bit of backstory on like the in Bolivia they had what was essentially a coup in October and they were planning to have another election in May but based on what was happening it looked very likely like that election was not going to happen and um it was kind of just kind of uncertain what could happen in the in the country with that going on so anyways that was when stuff started getting a bit more stressful and we were able to cross and it was okay but it was that wasn't, again, another, um, we again realized that stuff was getting more serious because we'd crossed the border between Peru and Bolivia probably about two weeks earlier and it was fine. There was nothing to it, you know, just hand your passports, everything was fine. But this time crossing back, there were guys in hazmat suits who were taking everybody's temperature before they crossed. And even there was one, uh, I think it was American guy with us who had a sunburn on his forehead and he got like taken aside because his temperature was registering too high. Mm -hmm. um, so that was when we started realizing stuff was getting serious and we started truly realizing we're probably going to have to cut the trip shorter than we expected. Right. So 
I mean, you, that's the second time you reference that. Like, you're just like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go home soon. Mm-hmm. So you, so you got into Peru um, right after that. So what was kind of like the next part of that? Because right when they announced it as a pandemic, I think it only took, took a couple days before, like, you know, I was working at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that, that happened very rapidly. So what happened as soon as you got to Peru and to the point where you started to try to actually like book your travel home? The next two days kind of went more or less as normal because we just felt like as like ridiculous as it sounds, just Peru felt safe enough that like we probably thought we'd at least have a couple weeks there, you know, to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't that there really wasn't many cases like everything was going kind of as normal. So the first two days were in Peru were kind of okay. Like I think the 13th, the 14th and 15th. And then the 15th was the day that Trudeau announced that Canadians abroad should come home. And once we heard that, we were we realized, okay, like this is we probably should look into this. But and we started. Um, we talked to Nicole's mom. She was a nurse, so we just kind of asked her what her opinion was on all this. And she was even saying, yeah, like you like maybe give it a day or two and see about maybe coming home uh, like the following Sunday or something. Mm. Like we still thought we at least had a week to leave. Um, and then, but on that day, within probably about two hours after even having that phone call, was when. The Peruvian, the president of Peru, um, declared a state of emergency and declared that he was closing all borders by midnight the next day. So we did not have a week. We only had about um, 24 hours to try and get out. Um, yeah. Wow. So what was that? What was that experience like when you got that announcement from the Peru uh, president? Um, we, did you like have to go like right to the airport? Were you trying to make calls? Like, what was kind of, how, how were you trying to get out of there as quickly as possible? Because I'm sure everything was just, like, jammed. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy moment. See, the thing was, this is, and this is what, I guess, annoyed us, was we didn't, the only reason we knew that the Peruvian president had made this, it was clear something was going on, because there was, um, just people were moving around our hostel, things felt a bit weird, for sure. But the only reason we even learned that the Peruvian president had declared this was because this bus company we were registered with sent out an email alerting us of it and saying they were going to run an emergency service of sorry for background we were in this town called Paracas which was about four hours from Lima so this bus company announced that they were going to run an emergency bus from that town in Paracas to the Lima airport um they sent this email out at 10 10 p.m and they said the bus would be there at 10 45 and just to get your stuff and just be ready um so we just immediately grabbed like ran to our rooms got our stuff all packed up uh, went out to this bus stop and waited for that bus to come in. The thing that annoyed us was that we didn't even hear this from like the embassy firsthand, like when we'd been registered with them for months in advance. And the fact that they weren't the ones that informed us that it was this bus company that just luckily was taking care of their clients. Um, so anyways, yeah, we hopped on that bus and it uh, it was yeah 10.45 p.m. It got us to the airport for 3.30 a.m. Uh, that, that day. So... I mean, that gave 35 minutes to get your, get your stuff and get on this bus mm-hmm. was like to get people get left behind. Were there other buses? Like I'm just I, picturing I, like this end of, you know, mm-hmm. apocalyptic scenario where people are fighting over this bus to, to get out. Luckily there is enough space for all of us on okay. it, but I'm sure there were a lot of people in that town that would have yeah been left behind who just didn't like, we were just lucky. We were constantly, we were glued to our phones that day because we yeah. could tell something was up. Um, like if we'd been out at a bar or something, like it would have been very easy to be trapped there. And that like, it was a small town. Like I don't, I didn't, we didn't even see a grocery store there. So I don't know what the situation would have been like for, uh, to be stuck in a place like that. And there were a lot of people who were stuck in towns like right. that. 
but yeah, oh. it was it was just lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah, were you so you were were you around like people from like other countries at all? Yeah, there's a lot of people from other countries, and there's quite a few people from Canada actually who were on that bus and who were at our hostel. Who, um, yeah, so there was yeah, a pretty it was a pretty diverse group. Like this bus we were on was mainly it was like a hop on hop off bus, so it was mainly almost entirely all international people. So right. yeah. So what were I'm trying to pick like so they were getting information. Were they getting information from their government? Because you mentioned like you didn't hear from your embassy, like our embassy, Canada. Were they getting information related to them? Were they hearing different things from their governments? And like, you guys had to like form this little community and like try to piece together this puzzle of what's happening. Um. Yeah. Some of them were. The only ones I know for sure was the Irish embassy was keeping in pretty good touch, which was pretty crazy because their embassy isn't even in Peru. It was in <laughs> Santiago, Chile. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it was a lot of just rumor mills and like nobody really knew totally what was happening. There were people like the bus was great. Like there was like a girl sitting behind us on the bus who was just crying the entire time. Like people were like panicking for the most part about mm. how they needed to get out and like they because they just had no idea what was gonna happen. Like it was all we knew was we heard it was gonna be martial law. The guy who was leading the bus he at least talked to us a bit and told us what the situation was and that there would be soldiers in the street and you wouldn't be allowed to leave your place unless you um were going to the grocery store so he gave us like some of the details there but yeah for the most part it was everybody was just kind of nobody really knew fully what was happening all they knew is that they wanted to get out of there as quick as possible right so just like this completely surreal experience like going on around you yeah oh yeah and yeah it was, was there like adrenaline like were you like was this kind of like like this experience of like I don't want to like put it as dramatic as life or death but you know what I mean like where you're just like thinking on your on your toes just doing all these quick movements like what's going through your mind and like take us through a bit of your emotion through that oh it was yeah definitely adrenaline but it was kind of an annoying type of adrenaline because it was still a four-hour bus ride right. so and it was so late at night so I just couldn't sleep so you're just sitting there but um, we kept busy because we were, since we were heading to the airport and we didn't have anything booked, we got a hold of Nicole's sister and my sister um, and we're trying to get them to just try it because we, all we had for Wi-Fi was the bus's spotty Wi-Fi, which was not working very well. So we were just kind of desperately trying to get a flight pretty much anywhere. Like since they were closing their borders, it was, if there was a flight to the UK, we would take it or a flight to Miami, we would take it or even Brazil because they still had their borders open. So we were just kind of desperately staying on the phone with them, trying to look stuff up. Our, the Wi-Fi kept kicking out and kicking us out. And anyways, there was nothing available though that whole time and we weren't able to sleep and we're just like, honestly, like just, yeah, things just going through our head is what to, what to do next. Um, it was never, it luckily never hit the point. It never hit the point of desperation or panic really. Mm -hmm. Like kind of always kept our heads straight enough and that we were like, um, like it was obviously scary. There was a lot of unknown happening, but all we could really focus on was the one thing ahead of us, which was try to book a flight and try and find a flight out. And then if you couldn't get a flight out, then it was, we'll focus on that after. So we were able to keep relatively calm from that, but we were not able to sleep at all on this midnight yeah. bus. Um, all right, episode number nine. Uh, this was a really cool conversation, um, and it was about therapy and, and mental health, but mental health from the perspective of uh, the LGBT community, uh, different uh, gender expressions and identities. And, you know, it's something I, I always want to chat about on this podcast, but it, it is hard, and I understand why, to get people on to 
talk about it because you know it's so personal and it can be so polarizing with people and it can attract a lot of negative attention but i really appreciated this conversation on on all things therapy mental health counseling um and and getting an inside look on on how that works from the other side uh coming from a practitioner so uh please give it up for episode number nine of the most downloaded so it's the ninth most downloaded episode uh and my guest was sydney dean yeah yeah absolutely um one thing i find particularly interesting um you know when i getting in the prep work done and for chat you know you're you you put that you know you work with people from diverse backgrounds experiences sexualities gender identities expressions um that is a very you know touchy subject for a lot of people these days um Mm. that's a very polarizing kind of topic um when it comes to i guess when you when it comes to political beliefs and and social beliefs and and you know you go on the internet and you see a whole bunch of different things going on there Mm -hmm. you know how 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 do i i phrase the the question you know these people are having these people wrong term but people who are experiencing difficulties when it comes to these certain subjects Mm -hmm. they you know have to deal with a lot on their own end and then they have the societal implications of everything going on on top of that you know how hard is it for people experiencing this in the the world right now from what you know and and your experience i hope i phrased that in a in a very nice (laughs) because i meant that truly as a as a, a question oh yeah absolutely no it, came, it very much came across as a question um and a nice question that is um how do i understand it um yeah the viewpoint that i have it's like very much like rooted so when i was Okay, going way back here. I feel like it's very much like an individual sort of experience. And so we're coming back into that like holding space for people as they like figure themselves out. Um, So thinking about it like from my own perspective, um, so like I'm someone like who identifies as uh, female, she, her pronouns. Like when I was growing up, I like had like this very interesting sort of like uh, coming to discover like my gender and my like gender expression. So I had like really short hair, like I played with all the boys. Like it's always like this fun like story about like how when I was younger, like I wore uh, like coveralls without like a t-shirt when I was like a little kid. Um, And like I would wear wear a backwards hat and like work boots and like want to like be out in the garage with my dad. And like no one ever really like questioned it. They just kind of like let me do it. They let me figure out like what, like how I wanted to express myself. Um, and so like coming into like adulthood or like teenage, well, sorry, teenage years and then adulthood, like I feel like so like grounded and very lucky, very privileged to have had the experience that I did where I had a family who was just very like understanding of I'm just figuring myself out. And so like, that's kind of like the view that I have currently. I mean, like, I feel like people 
very much are like on a path of discovering who they are in so many ways and like gender and gender expression and gender identity or it's like one of those things where there's so many uh viewpoints that people can have or like ways of thinking about it that's so like strict and narrow and but ultimately like what it does is it limits the people who are actually like living those experiences um which is I think like very heartbreaking because like I said like I would probably like say that I was like likely very confused about like my gender like when I was a kid but like I was in a space where I was supported enough to like be comfortable in like deciding who I was because of I decided that's who I was as opposed to being told who I was which I know that a lot of folks like aren't uh like they don't have that that luck to like have that um support in that sort of sense um so I always like I think that's how I think about it like when I'm interacting with people who are uh like navigating their own journeys when it comes to gender and like discovering who they are. Like I always think about like that experience for myself. And I think that that helps ground me in like having compassion and being able to like hold space for people. Right. Did you feel, so I know you said you came like from a loving family and, and you know, we're was supported, but when it comes to, you know, God, high school, um, you know, kind of societal, pressures and those boxes that we kind of fit everybody in and I, I assume you're around the same age as me where even when we talk about you know lgbtq um mm. like that still even wasn't that big of a thing and that was only like 10 12 15 years ago um, yeah did you you know was there a lot of pressure outside of your family in your own life that made you think oh I have to be this way oh I have to be that way you know I see this commercial doing one thing I see you know Mm -hmm. the girls at school doing this thing like was there a lot of pressure that you felt you needed to almost follow yeah I feel like it was almost pressure that like I put on myself like based on things and I think like some of that comes down to like a lack of representation um like in society or like in the media that was present at that time and I mean like it is still like not as uh like diverse representation in the media and in society like it still isn't like on par as to like what like a, a heteronormative sort of uh, uh lifestyle would be so I think that like that definitely informed the way that like I would think about my future and think about who I was. Um, and I think that that is changing little by little from like what I have experienced. Um, so when I was in university, I was part of an organization. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them or not, Ryan. They're called the Get Real Movement. No, I haven't. Oh, they're a really great organization um, that I can't remember what, what university they started in. I think Queens, maybe. Um, but it's run by someone named Chris Studer. And uh, he, yeah, started like this organization. He and um, his friend, I think, yeah, he and his friend Marley. Um, and so they started this organization that was all about like unlearning homophobia and transphobia and the different sorts of like language practices that people um, learn like as they grow up 
And by the time that I was in university, it was to the point where different universities within Canada and some of the states would have like different branches like at their schools. Um, and so I went to Dalhousie, so we had one there. And so what we would do is we'd go into like different schools within, and Dalhousie's in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So we'd go to different schools within Halifax, like middle schools and high schools, and we give presentations about unlearning, um, like the harmful language practices that we have, like that's so gay and that sort of thing. And we would um, talk about, uh, like what it means to like what we mean when we're talking about like sex and gender and gender expression and that sort of thing. And um, I remember, I think we were, we must've been in like a middle school class. Cause I remember like the, the kids weren't that old. And I remember like asking someone um, like, what does it, like, what does asexuality mean? And like three or four different people like stuck up their hands and they gave like this really like, uh, like in-depth like answer and I was like whoa like when I was in grade seven like that certainly wasn't something that like I even knew what to talk about you know it was kind of like you're gay or you're straight and most people are straight and so like I I think from that like I I really do feel like there are like a lot of younger folks who um just by the way that things are like changing like as time moves forward like Uh, it's becoming more of like a mainstream, not mainstream, but like it's becoming more dominant in society to like be like diverse and to accept diversity and to like be tolerant of like different folks. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know if that like answered a question, but like I think back to that a lot, actually. Um, Yeah. So episode number eight here, the uh, top eight this was an awesome conversation and you just listened to Sydney Dean come on and uh, I connected with Sydney through my next guest here. We talked uh, about a lot of things and it really sparked my interest on, on psychedelic therapy and healing circles. But the specific conversation um, we talked about here is uh, about how she's in a, an open relationship and polyamory. And, you know, I kind of started off the conversation by having a real kind of traditional look at it by, I don't know how I could feel about my partner with somebody else. And she puts it a great way. Uh, I really appreciated this conversation and have so much respect for her and, and the business she runs, go check them out. I have my favorite shirt from them. It's Octopied Mind, Octopied Mind on Instagram and octopiedmind.com. I love my pussy power shirt. She's one of the co-founders and owners uh, please give it up for episode eight. As you're, as you're talking, you're presenting these things that like, I'm just so not used to. So I'm just like, oh, whoa. So you mentioned you were in an open relationship and that's something like you, oh, you, you hear about a lot, but you don't actually know a lot of people who do it. And it's something mm-hmm. I've always kind of have been curious about because like, I guess my question is, and if you don't want to answer it, please feel free. Um, that's how we like to operate. But was there a point where you knew like you would be okay with sharing partners? Um, Cause you know, that's always something kind of people talk about in a relationship, I guess, just like, would you not, maybe not seriously, but you know, like, Oh, would it be okay if you had a threesome or, or brought another partner or date other people, you know? And, you know, I always find myself, I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I could do it. Like, was there a point where you're, you, you just knew you were okay with it? 
Um, looking back, I think I can definitely, well, not I think, I can definitely identify times in my life from even being like in elementary school where I knew that I had the capacity to love more than one person. Um, because before I knew that, you know, monogamy was the, I'm doing quotations with my fingers mm -hmm. here, but monogamy was the normal way to date somebody. I think in grade two, I had like two boyfriends. I mean, I was, I didn't know I was gay at that time. So I <laughs> disqualifies the whole experience, right. but um, yeah. So in your question, there's definitely a lot to unpack. The first thing that stuck yeah. out to me is this idea of sharing. So um, this is a question that I get a lot. Like, how can you share your partner? Don't you feel jealous? So if we look at that sentence, the word share um, comes from the world of consumption of goods, right? Mm -hmm. I have this item, you have that item. Well, we can either trade or share them, right? Mm -hmm. And so we oftentimes look at our partners as goods. We consume our time with our partner like we would consume food. And so when we have this idea that our partner going elsewhere with somebody that is not us and interacting with them in whatever capacity, we have this um, sort of reaction that we feel like someone's taking something that belongs to us. But the reality is, is that our partners don't belong to us, right? We each belong to our own selves. And um, so that's what I would say in terms of like sharing. So that is, I could talk probably for hours about sharing and the different levels that I and we, as in our partners, um, have to constantly revisit to unpack again. But um, when it comes to jealousy as well, I found the most challenging aspect of being in open relationships, or you can say polyamory, um, they're not interchangeable, but in my case, they are. Um, and so in these types of relationship dynamics, I felt like I wasn't allowed to be jealous because I felt like if I was jealous, then that meant that I wasn't meant to have more than one partner. And that caused me a lot of shame and guilt for a long time. And it also caused me to have no boundaries and just let my, not let, see, again, I'm catching myself in these words that I need to move away from, but uh, it, it would put me in situations where I would say yes for my partner to engage with somebody in a capacity that actually wasn't working for me, maybe yet or ever. So yes, you can have a sleepover with that person, because I felt like if I, I can't be jealous about it, and if I'm jealous about it, then that means I'm, I shouldn't be doing this. But I do want to do it because I am enjoying you know, my partners and the interactions in terms of the positive things that come with it. But um, yeah, it, like it, there is a lot of shame and guilt around jealousy and sharing and the kinds of questions that can come up for people when you tell someone that you are in an open relationship. Yeah, no, it, that's what I mean. And I'm sure there's like people like me who are like just question after question and you're just like to you, this is normal and this is the way it should be. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm sure it gets annoying from time to time to to answer all the questions. So thank you for mm -hmm. indulging me. Of course. Um, um, it's definitely not annoying. Um, honestly, it helps me reflect more and gain confidence in talking about it because unless somebody asks, it doesn't it doesn't come out of, you know, my little circle or out of my head. 
So yeah. I appreciate that you ask. No, it's like I, it's the whole reason like I wanted to do a podcast is just so I could meet people, whether it's from, you know, a different, um, you know, race background or sexuality background or interesting passion, hobby, um, expertise. Like it just, to me, it's so fascinating to speak openly and candidly with people without any, you know, guilt or shame or animosity be- between people. For me, like I'm just, I'm asking it out of a genuinely curious place because I want to learn. Mm-hmm. I want to expand where my thinking is limited and, mm-hmm. you know, that the things that I've been taught and brought up to believe and, and all those things and the accumulation of my experience, like it's vastly different from everybody else's. And once you kind of notice that you can learn, you can learn so much from so many other people. Like we're only going to talk an hour and I've already lost like, or (laughs) learned so much of, of all these different avenues. It's, that's what I find so fascinating about it. Totally. Can I ask you if you have ever thought about non-monogamy like have you ever explored what that feels like in yourself never never seriously to be honest with you um i'm i'm i don't want to say i'm a jealous person you know in in ways i definitely can be what i am is very when i when i say the word dependent i'm i it's not like i i don't want to say like it's needy i'm not very I'm not uh like you know like, mm, talk to me or hang out with, like it's not like that but I'm very dependent on a relationship to like for a partner um mm-hmm. where I can talk to and bounce ideas off them or they can talk to me or, or and we can we can converse and, and be together and like I don't know if I could share it <laughs> there's the word yeah share. catching there myself now <laughs> <laughs> But but um, It'll get you every time. yeah I know now every time I'm going to think about it, which is great I guess it's a great point to bring up because now every time it comes up I'll I'll think about it and catch myself mm-hmm. but that I don't know if I would feel okay mm-hmm. with with having another person mm-hmm. um, involved like I I don't mm-hmm. know and I've never thought about it seriously but I know I would be very hurt if my my partner. My, my girlfriend would be intimate, like physically with another person, whether that be man right. or woman. I know that would hurt me. And like, I'd feel, I'd feel it. So like, I don't know. You feel it. It's interesting because, um, uh, you know, my partner and I, my primary, well, not even primary, because that's kind of gone out the window too, but um, not that we broke up or anything. Just we we're trying not to use hierarchical terms. Mm-hmm. But um, the partner that I live with, that I have been with the longest, that I started this journey with, um, the one who I have a podcast with, Sydney, uh, she and I had these types of open conversations around like, oh, it would be fun to have maybe like a one night stand with someone that we invited over. Or maybe it'd be fun if like we flirted a little bit with that person over there or, you know, tonight at that party. And it slowly evolved into like, well, maybe it'd be cute to like date somebody that we saw, you know, once in a while. But we we would come out with all these things to protect ourselves. Like, oh, well, you know, if we date someone, we definitely wouldn't see them all the time. Mm -hmm. If we date someone, we definitely wouldn't live with them. If we date someone, we wouldn't have sleepovers. 
if we date someone, maybe you wouldn't even be together. It would have to be separate or definitely have to be together and not separate. Like we would come up with all these different things to protect ourselves. And it's funny because we actually did absolutely everything that we said we wouldn't do. We dated another couple. We lived with them. Um, we all went through a breakup together and now we're in the process of all getting back together. And so we've come full circle mm. through that full experience together. Um, but one thing that I really learned is that from the outside, you know, when you're thinking, um, like you, Ryan, you said that it would hurt you to think about your partner with somebody else. When I think back to those moments, it's, it's hard to really, um, answer that question in your position because, and in the position that I was once in, because we imagine that other person as a stranger. But my other partners who we've lived with and now we don't live with, um, who we continue to see, couldn't be more opposite of a stranger. Mm -hmm. They complement um, our relationship dynamics in, in ways that I never thought possible. The fear of maybe you know losing time or losing support I feel like we have an abundance of time, an abundance of support. Uh, even the other day where I was struggling with business, um, you know, one of my, well, my partner's partner is a business coach and she just came over and helped me for a, co a couple of hours. And so that's like where the community can kind of come in. And I know that that's not the same for every relationship dynamic, but I just wanted to let you know that. All right. One of my favorite Twitters. Uh, I, I love science and I, I love science so much, but I'm so bad at, you know, actually executing science problems. So I never took it in school just because I, I could never put it together, but I love learning about it. And it's so fascinating. And this, this guest really just blew me away with her knowledge and her passion and her excitement and the way she communicates these ideas and puts them in, it, these real complex things in in ways that someone like an idiot like me can really understand. Uh, like I said, she's one of my favorite Twitters. She's brilliant and absolute genius, and I, I love this conversation. Uh, episode number seven, please give it up for Dr. Heloise Devance. Um, so you said you're doing research full-time. Yes. What are you researching specifically? And feel free to get into as much detail as you want because I just want to, like my mind explode. <laughs> <laughs> okay feel free to ask as many questions yes, as you want please okay so at the moment i um i'm working on what we call stellar populations so it's just a bunch of stars and understanding how they evolve and how they live their life and how they die um and that's how we understand the stars in our universe really and the goal of my particular project ultimately is to understand where gravitational waves come from and where kilonovae come from. So are you familiar with gravitational waves a little bit? Should I explain that? Yes, because I want to say yes, but then I feel like I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know gravity, if I'm thinking of yes. gravity, like my along the lines there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so gravitational waves are freaking awesome. Gravity is really a really special force and we need to think about uh, the fabric of space-time when we talk about gravitational waves so every object that has a mass in the universe distorts the fabric of space-time a little bit kind of imagine um, a bed sheet that's uh, 
that's um, pulled like really, really tense between two poles, uh, like flat. And if you put a metal uh, bowl in the middle, it will create a little dip, right? Can you picture that? Mm -hmm. And if you mm -hmm. put a metal bowl that's heavier and denser, it will create a, a, a bigger dip and it, will, and it will create a bigger well. Well, the fabric of space-time is the same, but in three dimensions. And that's how you end up rotating around stars is because they create that kind of well that things fall into and rotate around. That's how right, okay. uh, the earth rotates around the sun. That's how the moon rotates around the earth. Um, but if you get objects that are really, really big and really, really dense, like neutron stars, um, then that well is really, really, really intense and really deep. And if you have two neutron stars rotating around each other, then they're going to, that warp in the fabric of space-time is going to rotate as well, right? And you're going to create waves. Just, you know, imagine you're, you're throwing a rock into a pond and you get these waves kind of spreading um, away from the, from the impact. That's the, that's the same idea. You get these waves in the fabric of space-time. Well, these gravitational waves can be detected now. Since 2015, we have the power to detect these waves in the fabric of space-time. And uh, so if you want to know more, you can Google the LIGO and the Virgo collaboration. They do incredible work. They can detect um, motions in space uh, of the order of 10 to the minus 21 meters, which is uh, <laughs> a one with 21 zeros in front of it. Uh, which is really insane. Like the site, it's a thousand times smaller than the nucleus of an atom. Okay, that's really small. We, it's <laughs> insane. Like I don't, I don't, I don't even understand really how you can measure that kind of yeah. length. Like how can you measure something that is a thousand times smaller than the length of an atom? I don't. It, they are incredible physicists. Anyway, so we can detect these gravitational waves. And like I said, you can get these gravitational waves if you have two very heavy masses in space rotating around each other, right? Um, and so my job is to understand how you get these two masses rotating around each other and then eventually merging. Because when they merge, they create a giant explosion that we call a kilonova. When you get two neutron stars merging, you get an intense burst of light. And in that burst of light, you also create new elements. So you create gold, you create platinum, you create um, uh, bare earth elements, and all of these things that we actually have on earth, they need to come from somewhere. They didn't come from the Big Bang because the Big Bang only created hydrogen, helium, and trace elements, right? So these things need to come from somewhere. And, um, and so these kilonovae is something that we've been studying over the past few years. And, uh, and my job is to help my boss understand where they come from because she's got this really amazing simulation. So she can simulate a million um, solar masses in, in, a, in a computer. So you, you take a million, the equivalent of a million times the mass of the sun and you divide it up into a bunch of stars, right? Like a mini universe in a computer. And then you make them evolve all together uh, for like millions and millions of years, quote unquote. And, um, and then you see, what they, you see what they do. You see how they evolve, you see how they get together, you see if they merge, you see how they create gravitational waves and all of that stuff. And then you can compare it to our real universe and the real observations that we see from telescopes and from space telescopes. And if it matches, then that means you've understood how the universe works. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, getting to that point is quite, quite a puzzle. <laughs> so, okay, so the sun 
in our yes. galaxy is a star. Yes. Um, and it's quite big. See, that's my knowledge of space. Yes. When we're talking about these, these giant, uh, what do you call them again? Sorry. The neutron stars? Yeah, the neutron stars. How, like, in comparison to the sun, what are, what are we talking about here? Okay, so what's really crazy about the sun is that it's not actually that big for a star. I mean, it's a bit bigger than average, but the sun isn't that special. Um, and neutron stars come from more massive stars. Neutron stars are actually dead stars, and they are the remnant of a much bigger star that um, lived its entire life and then died. So if you get a star that's more than eight times the mass of the sun, at least, at the very least, um, then it's categorized as a massive star. And these will have very different lives. They will live very quickly. So millions of years instead of billions of years, they will burn their fuel really quickly. And then they will uh, die as a supernova. And what happens when they die is that basically they've burnt all of the fuel that they can. And when they run out of fuel, then gravity wins basically. Because stars are big balls of mass, right? And so gravity is constantly pushing everything in and unless there's something to counteract that gravity mm -hmm. they would collapse right the thing that counteracts gravity is the fusion inside the star so fusion stops because you've run out of fuel your core, your core collapses when the core of a, of a massive star collapses the pressure is so dense that the electrons so the negatively charged particles and the protons the positively charged particles have to merge into neutrons and and when they do um they can be even denser like than any star of the star in the universe and so what ends up happening is that one and a half times to two times the mass of the sun is condensed into an object that's only 20 kilometers across so the sun is in radius a hundred times that of the earth so it's 100 times bigger than the Earth in radius. 20 kilometers is the size of a city. So yeah. you take all of that material and you condense it pretty much as much as you can. If you were to condense it further, it would have to be a black hole. It would no longer be a star, right? So it's, it's as dense as it can get. It's the density of a nucleus. And, um, and, that's, and that's why they have such incredible, what we call potential wells. So that's why they create such incredible... Um, divots in the fabric of space and that's why they warp them so much is because of their density it's how much mass you can fit into a tiny space that really creates that um that well right um so yeah they're they're extreme okay absolutely extreme. now i don't even know if we know the answer to this as as a human race are all the stars in the universe like are they already created or do new stars pop up all, new all stars the time? pop up all the time it's incredible so and you have different galaxies that do different things right. so we can classify them in star forming galaxies and what we call quiescent galaxies so they're they're just not doing much um most of the star formation in the universe happened millions billions of years ago um I need to think about this in like uh, 10 billion years ago, something like that. It's just that it's not the scale that we usually think about. We talk about redshift. So mm -hmm. if anyone out there understands what redshift is, it's at redshift too. But uh, so it's about uh, 10 billion years ago that most of the stars in the universe were created. But we still have star formation ongoing. We have star formation ongoing in the Milky Way. Um, oh. And uh, yeah, absolutely. The sun is like a third generation star or something like that. So a bunch of stars 
like were formed and died and then their gas was given back to space and then that gas condensed again into stars and these stars died and then the sun was born um and we know that because the sun is you know it's made mostly of hydrogen and helium like was created in the big bang but there's like two percent of its elements that are heavier elements they're just they're stuff that has been processed by previous generations of star there's no way these elements were created in the big bang these come from previous stars that have lived their lives um done a great job of making new stuff and then releasing it releasing it into the universe to make the stars that we have uh in our solar neighborhood all right one of my favorite twitters uh i i love science and i I love science so much, but I'm so bad at, you know, actually executing science problems. So I never took it in school just because I, I could never put it together. But I love learning about it. And it's so fascinating. And this this guest really just blew me away with her knowledge and her passion and her excitement and the way she communicates these ideas and puts them in these real complex things in in ways that someone like an idiot like me can really understand uh like i said she's one of my favorite twitters she's brilliant an absolute genius and i i love this conversation uh episode number seven please give it up for dr heloise devance this was another great episode uh and i really really learned a lot from it because I think we all think we know about cannabis, but there's just people who, who know the science and, and really, really understand it. And uh, I've been using their product, their CBD product uh, for a couple months now. And I can honestly, I stand by it so much of, of helping with my anxiety. I know a lot of, we get into it and I know a lot of people have different kind of uh, experiences with CBD, but for me, the CBD oil has, like it hasn't cured my anxiety, but holy hell has it helped a lot. Uh, she's an absolute genius, runs an amazing company uh, out of Ottawa. Uh, it's called MBL Apothecary. I get the thousand milligram uh, CBD oil from them. It's hemp based. Uh, and here we talk about the benefits of CBD coming from a, a medical perspective. So uh, she's one of the co-founders of MBL Apothecary. Please give it up for episode six with Maddie Brown have too many drinks like cool but if you're expecting a medical dose to help with anxiety or help you sleep you have to take the right amount you know right. what i mean um so that kind of that's thc the other side of things is is cbd so obviously the biggest difference between the two is that cbd is non-intoxicating meaning it does not cause you to feel stoned or impaired or out of it it can absolutely relax you. It can absolutely make you, uh, like people will say, oh, I, I sleep so well with CBD, but it's not impairing or intoxicating, meaning you're like, oh, I'm so relaxed right now. I definitely shouldn't like go operate machinery. Whereas if you're super stoned, you'd be like, oh, it'd be cool to operate machinery. CBD <laughs> doesn't impair you that way. So of course it can affect you, but it's not intoxicating. I think that's the biggest difference. It's like having de-alcoholized beer. You're, right. you're taking the uh, impairing part out of it. So CBD, as you probably, and probably a lot of your listeners have heard as well, is fantastic for seizures or tremors. It's fantastic for uh, mental health conditions. So everything from anxiety to PTSD to uh, bipolar disorder to uh, just straight up depression. Uh, it is fantastic for inflammatory pain. 
meaning THC was the one really good for nerve pain. CBD is going to be good for inflammatory pain. Those are conditions like arthritis, um, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, which is like inflammation in your, in your stomach. Uh, anything that ends with the word itis means inflammation. So mm -hmm. tonsillitis, when your tonsils are inflamed, appendicitis, yeah, and so on but it's gonna be good for anything in that category. So migraines are inflammatory in basis. You'll find a lot of people who swear by their CBD regimen for migraines. Mm. Uh, and lastly, CBD is actually very good for nausea as well. So sometimes THC can actually make people feel um, dizzy because it makes you feel stoned. So that can actually make your nausea a bit worse if you're dizzy. CBD really seems to settle, um, kind of upset stomach a lot. Okay. So, and then it, if you have questions there, and then the last thing I was going to really talk about was just the kind of vaping versus edibles or mm -hmm. smoking and mm -hmm. stuff versus edibles, but you go um, ahead. If you so have. we'll go, we'll go to that. But so for CBD, because that's obviously the big one, that's the one I put out mm -hmm. um, and I got a lot of questions and I'm, I'm sure, you know, people who I just was like, go talk to her. I know nothing. I'm like, mm -hmm. in Google. Um, so obviously from my personal experience, taking it like has been like wondrous for my anxiety. Um, yeah. I feel a lot like less stressed, like a lot more at ease, like some things like, you know, for instance, a, a podcast before, like I'd always have a little anxiety, like, Ooh, like kind of worried about meeting someone new, all those types of things that are normal. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I don't really get any of that. There's still an element of it there, but it, it like for someone like me, who's like super anxious, like I noticed yeah. a noticeable difference. Oh, I, have yeah. some, I have some people who, who take it and they say they don't notice anything um, that, you know, that they didn't, they didn't feel any effects. They're kind of unsure what they're supposed to, um, to, to feel, you know, because you're not getting intoxicated. They're like, okay, well, like, how do I know if it's working? Yeah, for so sure. My, my first question is, you know, it, the, and the biggest one I got is, is the relief instantaneous like if you're really anxious can you just take a drop it's gone and then like you don't really have to worry or is it more kind of like a dosing thing like uh for instance my um my ssri antidepressants you know i have to take that every day and it takes a while for it to my body chemistry to change and need to start to notice the effects you know right. what what is that what is it is it more of that or is it more instantaneous uh really yeah. through the cbd for sure so i think that's that confuses people a lot with the cbd is not like necessarily knowing when it kicks in because when you're stoned or when you're drinking it's like oh yep I can feel yeah. it now um, with CBD it's definitely more subtle what I find is that a lot of my pain patients are like oh my god yeah it works right away but mental health patients are like I, I don't know if it's working right away because it is um, much more subtle mm -hmm. um, so you were kind of ex explaining why it, or how it helped you so the reason that so have you had you heard that CBD was effective for seizures before this? Very yeah, I've, 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 uh, and you see videos on on the internet and all that stuff. So yeah, I have, right. I, I'm familiar so, with it at least. So the reason that cannabis is so effective for seizure disorders, or CBD in particular, is so effective for seizure disorders, is because one of the things that CBD does is it reduces overactivity in your brain. So when you're having a seizure um, in like non-medical terms, there's basically way too much shit going on in your brain. It's basically called overfiring. 
there's too much and it results in you having this stimulation, this neuro neurological stimulation that causes a seizure. When you are in a mental health crisis, the exact same thing is happening in your brain. There is too much shit going on, too much firing, mixed signals. You're not having a seizure disorder, but you're having a panic attack or you're having an anxiety attack or you're having a PTSD flare up where you cannot control your mood the same way someone having a seizure cannot control their muscle contractions. It's the same thing. CBD doesn't differentiate in your brain about what the overfiring is. Mm. So the same way that CBD very clearly works for seizures. I mean, I've watched people having seizures, they take it and then it stops. Can't really deny that working. You're having an anxiety attack. You, you take the CBD and it stops. So it works the same way. It was just more advocacy for physical and mental health being synonymous. They are the same thing. If you give meds to the same things, they will respond the same way with this reduction in overactivity. So you'll have people with anxiety or with ADHD or with PTSD or with night terrors whose brains are always going without like sounding rude. I have PTSD myself without your brain kind of going haywire and you take CBD and the same way it would reduce that overactivity in a seizure, it's going to do that for your mental health condition. Now I have people who say, okay, I've been taking it for a week. I don't notice anything. I'm not really feeling that difference. So they stop taking it. And then I get a message like a week later saying, oh shit, maybe it was working because I'm not sleeping as well as I was last week. Or I, I am a bit more irritable this morning, or I do find that I'm a bit more moody in traffic than last week, right? It's subtle. It's not that kind of hit you with um, a dose of something the way THC does or the way Tylenol does. If you're, if you're taking CBD for mental health, it can be more subtle. I've had patients message me in the car on the way home saying, oh my God, I took it. I feel like it's already working. Is that uh, a kind of um, like somatic experience where maybe it's just, you feel like it's working. So it is awesome. Mm -hmm. If that's what it is, <laughs> go for it. Maybe it actually starts to kick in in 45 minutes, but the second you take it, you're feeling like it's effective. So you're like, okay, this anxiety I feel, I know it's going to go away. So you already feel better. Okay. But I do agree. It's definitely trickier because it's not something that just hits you with this, this hit of impairment. You are, you know, subtly mm -hmm. getting used to it. I've had people who say it takes them a month of of playing around with the doses before it works. I've had people saying um, they tested it by watching a show that they watch all the time and then they watch it while taking CBD. So it hurts less when they get up off the couch after. Their character that they hate is not as annoying as usual. They're laughing at the show more. So it's you, you have to kind of really test it yourself. And that's mm -hmm. one of the nice things with cannabis is you're in charge of the of the whole process. If you want to take it at night, go for it. During the day, go for it. You want to take um, a sativa or an indica or whatever it is, it's your choice. And that's the nice thing about cannabis that there doesn't really, that doesn't really happen with a whole lot of medications where the patient is in charge and not the doctor. Right. And that's, that's what happened to me. Um, like I didn't notice it right off the top. It was only after doing those activities that would usually give me some nerves. Yeah, um, it exactly. Was the, pod, the podcasts, the going uh, on first dates again after a long-term relationship, things mm -hmm. that would make me nervous. I noticed. I was like, "Oh, here we go!" Yeah. Like, okay. But then you know, and then just 
you always get that type of thing from people that yeah like they they take it they're like, I don't really feel anything it didn't really work for me and yeah like so that's where it goes into like do I have to take it every day for it to really make an I, effect I say I tell people that they should be taking it every day, especially when it's for a mood thing. You know, if you just had surgery on your foot, yeah, you're going to take it for two months and you might never take it again. But Mm -hmm. mental health doesn't tend to go away. It Mm -hmm. can be managed, but it's still always there. So in terms of um, should you take it every day? Yeah, totally. Because maybe um, if you take it in the morning and in the evening every day, on day four, maybe you would have had a freak out by now, but you have some CBD built up in your system. So you never really get to that point of being super, super, super agitated or irritable or stressed because you have that kind of baseline CBD in your system. I think that's where I tell people, as long as you don't have a negative, you know, you don't take it and feel awful or take it and have a a medication that you shouldn't mix it with. If you take it and feel good, you can take it like a vitamin every day, especially the product that you're using from me that my partner Tiffany and I make. Um, It's derived from hemp as opposed to derived from the cannabis plant, which we can talk about after um, we kind of finish up the little cannabis 101, but it makes a huge difference for sure in terms of of what product you're using. Okay, episode five. This was one of the most powerful conversations I have had on the podcast this year ever um when george floyd happened and we learned about Breonna taylor and ahmaud arbery um the 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 protests just kind of kicked off and i i it's really hard um you want to cover and you want to have a good conversation about it but you have to be respectful of the time the energy and you know the trauma that that people are going through when when things like this happen in the news. Of course, you want to get the message out and and help push their their the stories and their thoughts and and their voices. But it's a real kind of you you really have to tread carefully because you do not want to harm the other people by by asking them to speak. But I was I was so lucky to be joined. Uh, by a mental health advocate, uh, a strong black voice. Um, he is uh, an, a tremendous mental health advocate. I respect him so much and all the things he brings. Uh, I know he's been working on getting a, a number to replace uh, 911 for mental health uh, response, mental health crisis response. And he's also a fellow unsinkable ambassador with me. Uh, this this conversation was a, an absolute uh powerful conversation that I really, really listened to and and thought about deeply afterwards. So for episode number five, give it up for my man, Asante Houghton. You know what I mean? Like you don't get that information sometimes because you just get the, you know, someone was killed, blah, blah. And then, you know, the new cycle just keeps going because there's so much going on. And it's, it's, I think that's why, you know, media gets in trouble, especially in the States with, you know, fake news and, and that they're biased or, or whatever, um, because they, they don't often represent the full story. And like you were saying, those many layers of everything going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one o'clock meetings. Okay. No, I'm not going to uh, keep you too much longer, uh, but I do have two more, two questions for you. Um, one is on the the recent movement of abolish uh, police. Um, that's that's trending on Twitter. 
Um, it's something when I immediately read it, I was against because of the word abolish until I read more on it, which many people don't do. I don't know if you have a, a background or, or a sense of what that movement's about, but, you know, are you kind of for it right now, maybe against it? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that whole movement? You know, it's interesting um, is, is that I have not been able to do enough research right. myself to, to really have uh, an informed opinion on it. You know, um, I, I think for me, as far as what I've read so far and what I understand, uh, you know, abolish policing or defund the police. It's really about um, taking money away from the reactive nature of how police operate and, and you know, putting that money into preventative measures um, so that, you know, maybe communities uh, which are affected by the, the sorts of challenges that impoverished communities are affected by um, don't experience the things that quote unquote require policing, even though I'm, you know, it's interesting. What one thing I've been saying to a lot of friends lately is that, you know, uh, you hear a lot of folks, uh, a lot of white folks who maybe just, I don't know, think about this stuff differently or quote unquote, don't get it yet or whatever the case is, um, who say things like, you know, the police are there to serve and protect. But when you're a black person, it feels like the police are there to surveil and enforce, you know? So um, that that's kind of how I've always ex like experienced police. Police make me more nervous than anything in the world. Um, when, when I'm around police officers, I am very nervous. Um, even now, as I'm talking about it, I'm getting nervous. Uh, police cruisers rolling by. I'm always like, what are they doing? You know, I live in downtown Toronto, you know, so there's often a lot going on in downtown Toronto. I live right outside of a university, you know, the Eaton Center, Young and Dundas. It's all right there. It's the center of the city where everything happens, outdoor concerts, all of that. And, you know, there's always something going down. And, you know, just my past history. And, and here's the thing about police is that my anxiety around police is not built on the videos of George Floyd or other folks who have been brutalized by police. It's based on my own experience in my own life. And I think that's the part that a lot of Canadians don't get about black people being upset or feeling the way that we feel about police is that, you know, maybe we're not getting shot in super public ways, but I, I can, I do not know. In fact, in the entirety of my life, I think I am the only black male that I know who has not been unjustly manhandled by police. And that's not to say I have not been stopped or un, un, you know spoken to in ways that I shouldn't be spoken to or you know intimidated and things of that nature. It's just a police officer has never laid their hands on me. You know, but I've been called everything in the book dangerous, you know, I look like this and all of that and 
you know, every other black male in my life that I know has had a negative physical altercation with police. Right. So. Yeah. Just processing. It's, you, you know it, but when you hear, when you hear it, like, it's just, yeah, that's, it's a lot. And that's, it's just tough. Um, and I can only imagine. Um, the last one for you, you know, it's a, it's a question I've kind of asked amongst my friend group is like, how does this current wave end? You know, we have the protests, they're going around the world. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it's a very complicated time. Like how everybody forgot about the coronavirus, right? Yeah. It's not only like we're in kind of two waves of these, these, movements and and now you know you're in this this danger of the pandemic spreading but you know i know you don't have all the answers but is where do you see this ending like what do you hope i know probably what you hope for it's a stupid question but you know just share some of your thoughts on on where you see this current time going and 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 moving forward uh i have my aspirational thoughts and I also have the thoughts of the way I think it's going to happen. The way I think it's going to happen is that the protests will die down probably in another, you know, one to three weeks. And then there will be probably some level of legislative change over the next several months to a couple of years. After that, um, who knows uh, what I hope will happen in the process is that we don't forget this moment in time and that this moment in time has made a large enough impact on the majority of us that we continue to learn. We continue to stay committed to it. You know, um, I, what I, think people who are not black can do. I know we talk about white people a lot as well, but also wanting to acknowledge that, you know, there are people who are not black who also throw a significant amount of racism toward black people. Um, that's a whole different conversation for a different day, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would like for all non-black non-black people to do and also for you know black people like candace owens (laughs) uh, are and you know to listen to black people and to believe black people you know i because we've been talking about this kind of stuff for a very long time but now we got a 10 minute video of it and not like a 30 second police clip of the police are shooting and people make up a narrative in their head about why they might be shooting. You know, with George Floyd, what we got was several different angles of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, kneeling on his neck and not responding to civilians who are telling him to, yo, get up. Don't you see he's not moving? Um, We also have the surveillance video of George Floyd being handcuffed. So we know that he was not resisting arrest. 
So it, you know, we have all of the irrefutable video evidence in front of us. And that's what it took for folks to believe black people, right? Don't allow that to happen again. Just listen to us, just believe us. Because what do we gain from lying? Like where, what do we get out of that? Why would we do that? If we are acknowledging that we are in a, an oppressed position, in a position of oppression, would lying not only actually just make our lives worse? If we are found to be lying, why would we do that? It does not make logical sense. Yeah. Powerful words. Right? So just believe us. That's it. And to keep learning and to keep, you know, thinking what is it, what might it be like to walk through the world in a black body where people assume that you're dangerous. People assume that you're an idiot. People assume that you're incapable. People assume that you're incompetent. People make all these negative assumptions about you the moment they see you. And then as a black person in the professional sphere or just in the world, you're working every day to make sure people don't make those assumptions about you because if they do, it can impact not only how well you do in terms of your economic circumstance, but also whether or not you get beat up, raped, killed that day. Episode number four. Oh my God. What a, what a blast of a conversation. Um, it's not often you, you talk directly with sex workers, at least for most people. And it's something I've always wanted to cover because as society becomes much more open and, and sex positive, we we're, we're starting to hear those voices and we, we have the, the emergence of OnlyFans and um, a much more um, greater acceptance of, on camming and porn um, and, and doing porn in a healthy way. And I love this conversation because it was hilarious, but it was also informative and really shed some light on, on the life of a sex worker and, and, you know, uh, helped me really conceptualize things. Uh, we talk about, we talk about sex. We talk about the, the male female dynamic. We talk about, you know, feminism, all those different things. Uh, I've loved this conversation so much. So for episode four, uh, she's the host of the stripper story podcast. Go check it out. It is, <laughs> it's so hilarious. Uh, and, and my guest on number four, please give it up for Chloe. Um, you know, and then I always found that women are actually almost more sexual, at least in my experience, than men once you unlock that gate. <laughs> do you have any, like, why do you think that is? Why is it such a, it's like a completely locked door until eventually it opens and then it's just like kind of like a floodgate of all this great funny stuff yeah exactly we like me and my friend was saying this last week she's so, like single dating and she's like the sex is always awful the first time i'm like it is because how the hell are you supposed to know about each other's bodies they're so different aren't they you know like mm -hmm. everybody's body's different everybody's kinks are different all of that good stuff but um i mean i did obviously when i was younger and i was dating i wouldn't talk about it but now if i'm single and i'm going on a date i'm like so anal how do we feel <laughs> although i'll be like okay so do we douche or do you like things in your asshole I mean, like genuinely i'll have a few drinks and i'll talk about it because obviously the first 
intimate moment is going to be pretty shit anyway. But I think opening that floodgate early on, even before you have sex, it does weed out the men from the boys for me, personally. I like talking about sex. I think it's the most important thing in our lives. You know, it, we come from it. We are, it's, it is life, you know. And if you can't have good sex with a partner, even if you're, you know, having sex with numerous partners, not just one, it, what's the point? You know, and if you can't express what you like and they can't express what they like, it just becomes this just awful experience. So, um yeah, I think, I don't know why people don't want to talk about it. I think that, especially with women, I've found that we just expect men to know what turns us on or how we come like, oh yeah, but like, he didn't go down on me for like, you know, the first 14 weeks. It's like, cause the poor guy doesn't fucking know what to do. Or he doesn't know if you like it. Like at least give them some, give people some encouragement as to what you like and what you don't like. I think that would probably help out a lot. Um, and confidence as well is just attractive anyway, isn't it? If you're shying away from something, it's just no one really wants to push it, mm. um, especially with anal. And like, I talk oh. about that a lot. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there is a lot of pressure points in there. And I actually learned this week that we have better orgasms from our assholes than from, from our vaginas or dicks. So if you can like penetrate your asshole, it's the best orgasm you'll ever experience in your life. But people don't, don't want to talk about it because it's your asshole, right? It's like overcoming these... I don't know, boundaries, I guess. It's just pushing that, pushing that button, you know? Um, yeah. Fuck, yeah. I remember one Christmas, um, someone I know who, who's gay, was, you know, they were a little tipsy when they were drunk. We're out, <laughs> we're out he's having a smoke and um, he's just like, you need to have a prostate orgasm. I'm like, pardon me? He's like, no, seriously, it, it, was, it will change your life. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just even me, like, coming from a small town like mm, like that's scary mm-hmm. like he, yeah, like, but he the was thing so is, adamant yeah it, but the thing is it's you can talk about it all you like until you experience it yeah. that is another thing entirely um but yeah he's absolutely right absolutely right and like i you know i think it depends with a woman as well if you have anal and it's the first time it's really really freaking awful and you have a really bad experience mm. whether it's just the dick size or with a guy if you've got like a girl going down on you and you feel uncomfortable, whatever. If it's a bad experience from the, from the get-go, you're, not, it's, you're less likely to try it again. So it's all about just overcoming that, I think. Uh, but a prostate orgasm for, for dudes is just next level. Have you had hmm. one yet? Hmm. <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh. I, think trying to con- I mean, even like trying to convince myself to get over it, but then to <laughs> try to ask a woman to, I don't know, like that, that's a barrier for me. Well, I guess so. I mean, obviously not every woman's into the ass, right? Yeah. But you can do it on your own. That's like another thing mm. you can do. There's, there's toys out there that are really freaking great that work and you can experience it on your own without having to ask anybody's help. No, for real though. Um, I, and it's funny, you know, when we're talking about these first experiences, I, I think especially I would go back to my early twenties and um, my first kind of like sexual experiences and it was very common for like, it was just like the woman just wanted to do kind of um, like doggy style. And she's like, isn't that what, like they would all kind of be like, isn't that what, you know, guys like, isn't that what guys want? And it it kind of occurred to me, I think men get a lot of their first sexual kind of fantasies and experiences from porn. Yes, you're right. Porn is like this uh, exaggerated form of sex. And then, but I think that becomes the expectation 
And then it like kind of ruins women because guys are just kind of jackhammering and jamming their fingers places. And yeah, <laughs> it would probably be very unpleasant. Yeah, you're right. I mean, porn has got some, like everything to do with, with how people perceive sex. You know, um, I think it's pe- people, I'm not saying women or men or whoever is, I guess, like responsibility to if you do watch porn i don't know it's a ridiculous mum thing to say but do it responsibly (laughs) like don't don't be just thinking that women actually moan like that and just come like this like or you know holes just open up like the fucking grand canyon things don't actually happen this way (laughs) like it is it is acting at the end of the day it's just like going into a strip club and saying oh yeah that stripper's really into me you know she really fancies me i'm like no she's there for a job right okay and um and actually, if the porn stars are doing their job well, or the stripper is, um, you, you're convinced of it, right? So I think it is, it's just our responsibility to, like, you know, be real about it and, like, read a bit and, like, understand that these women are, are working and men are working. Um, and, and, yeah, and not to take sex as that's what it is. Real sex with a real person is just so much more fumbly than porn. It's so less airbrushed and there's a lot less moaning and it's do you know what i mean it's just not realistic at all is it yeah um that's why amateur porn is pretty great to watch because like mm. it is you know what i mean like i love amateur porn you mm. know you learn some real things about it. you're like oh actually that that uh, you know position does actually work like that you know it's right. not just you know made that way through a porn studio you know so um so yeah i do agree with you porn is to be you know uh, enjoyed responsibly, I would hope. <laughs> Such a boring thing to say. Is there a p- particular things that you've learned about men with sex that maybe before you, you know, you joined this profession and you, you started to get more experience and talking about it with other professionals? Like, did you learn something new about men that, you know, you maybe didn't know beforehand or had another com- preconceived notion about it? Are they like, you know, do they like anal play more than they want to like let on? Do they, you know, or do they cry more? I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we're all, whether you've got a dick or a vagina or a dick and a vagina, we're all the same beast, really. I think we've all got feelings deep down. I mean, I think that there's obviously a stigma around what how women is made and how a man is made and what we need to do to be the man and the woman in the relationship. But I think from what I've experienced, especially, I mean, I've never been an escort, for instance, I've never Mm. accepted money for sex because I'm, my brain doesn't work that way. However, I mean, in the strip club, you see those guys who come in balls, you know, blazing like lad women. And it's normally just a projection of like, it's, it's like if a guy gets a really swanky car and you're like, he's got a tiny penis. It's like, it's kind of like a similar thing. People do have feelings deep down and they normally, from what I've experienced, you don't see the best, their best selves in the strip club that you just see them the most kind of, Larry, arseholeish self, you know, I think. So I haven't really seen the best sides of men, I wouldn't say. If I've learned anything, it's negative things. Mm. Um, and, and I think, but through the job, the people who I've dated, who I've told about what I do, um, it does weed out the men from the boys. And I've been pleasantly surprised by guys who are just like, yeah, it's a, it's a job. And 
they'll understand then why I'm so sexually open and they'll understand me a bit better then. Um, so I have been like kind of flawed a little bit by how well it's been received when I'm dating someone. I mean, I've had really positive experiences dating guys, you know, it's never been an issue in my job. Um, so yeah, I mean, guys love anal, guys love sex. That's what I would, you know, and they're more open to t like talking about it. Not when it comes to me, cause I'm pretty much a guy in that sense, if that's what, you, what you'd call it, whatever. But, um, but that, that's a generaliz generalization, I would say. I, I mean, a lot of women do like talking about it. I think it just it takes a bit of coaxing out, I think. Right. Um, but yeah, I that's what I would say. Especially with like the, the male, female dynamic, um, you know, it's 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 very hard for me to bring up the conversation of sex because I don't want to come across as like being that guy like oh he's just right. into sex right like yeah. if the woman brings it up first like we're we're total like then it's like okay like it's all game and we talk about it openly but for me to yeah. initiate that it's like you know because because also you know like men love sex but men are assholes a lot of them. <laughs> Well, some of them are, some, some yeah. women are like, I've been yeah. an arsehole. Like I literally hold my hands up and I've been an arsehole. Like when I'm single, I'm just like, I, I'm almost at like a bit like a dude, but that, that is not a bit like a dude. I shouldn't say that because it's not like anything really. I'm just a bit more sex is sex. It doesn't have to be attached to an emotion. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't have to date you to want to fuck you. Like it really is just a, it's a carnal urge. Right. Um, and I think that's how men see sex a bit more than women. They can, they can decompartmentalize their brains slightly to see it as what it is, right? Whereas women have, they're much more, have a feminine emotion about it. And it has a dreamlike emotion slightly, some women. And that's, that's a stereotype that mm -hmm. I'm kind of outlining there. That's probably why you're finding it harder to talk to women about sex, because that's the stereotype, right? The men always talk about it. Mm -hmm. Not in my life. Like I'm the one that always wants sex more. I am the dude, right? And there are women out there like that. I'm sure mm -hmm. there are lots. Um, and even if they're not like it now, they probably could be with the right man. So I think it just takes, you know, uh, coaxing and like, you know, feeling comfortable with partner to be able to talk about it. Okay. So episode number three, like what a treat this episode was. If you're in the mental health community, you hear it all the time. Um, we talk about mindfulness, you know, practice mindfulness. Mindfulness will help. Uh, do you, do you practice mindfulness? Like, what does that even mean? Um, what's the science behind it? Is it a, is it a bunch of mumbo jumbo or is there something really to it? And I wanted to get into that, especially as we were kind of in a couple months in the pandemic, a couple weeks, and people are really, you know, starting to get used to, this new reality we were in, but still struggling. Um, so I wanted to dig into it. And, and through um, a story on Unsinkable, I was able to connect with, uh, uh, it's, called the, it's called The Mindful Project, and two extraordinary women. Uh, absolute pleasure to talk with them. The one is a, has a doctorate in, and is a professor in mindful, mindfulness like science and research. And the other is a Canadian Olympian, an absolute soccer legend, Olympic bronze medalist, um, and one of the best goalies that we've ever produced uh, in the game of soccer, for sure. Um, both co-founders of The Mindful Project. Please go check them out. Uh, it's really helped me, and I love this conversation. Episode number three, uh, give it up for my guests, Aaron McLeod and Dr. Rachel Linville. 
I'd like to kind of dive into just a little bit of this, the science behind it. So, you know, when we talk about things like meditation, about breathing, you know, Aaron touched on it just very briefly, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. What is it about breathing and being present in, in this moment? What are some of the things that it, like science tells us that it does and makes that difference? Yeah, thanks for asking so I can geek out a little bit because I absolutely <laughs> love this because just just a little backstory, I went into my doctoral research not planning on, on researching mindfulness. Oh. I, act, I actually started um, researching because I was, I, in, I've coached uh, college women for uh, 20 years and I always felt like I connected well with them and I already had a master's in uh, exercise science and sports psychology and had done a lot of, you know, I have a certified mental coach. I had things that I was already using to help them mentally, but I just, this next generation of athletes, I was, I was missing on. And I was like, what's different? And they were more anxious. They had more fear of failure. Uh, They're just more stressed out. I'm also a college professor. So I was seeing it in the classroom too, not just with my athletes. And so I started wondering, like, is it just me or is this a thing? So I actually started researching stress and anxiety in what we call the emerging adult population. So that's basically like late high school up all the way through like graduate school students. And um, the research showed that stress, anxiety, fear of failure, depression, like pretty much all of the horrible mental health things, right, are like through the roof with this population. And then even down all the way into that elementary school population, which is really disconcerting. And so as I was researching this, mindfulness kept coming up as uh, a mitigator or something that actually would reduce a lot of these symptoms. And so you obviously have people that say it's helping. You're like, okay, but what is the actual physiological side of things, right? Yeah. So that's what I think is so cool is that breathing, like uh, Aaron was saying, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms the body down. So think about you know, you're getting ready for a big event or something that you're nervous for, that heart rate automatically goes up, which is good to an extent because it's getting more blood and oxygen where it needs to go. But when our heart rate is over 120, we actually can't think of it clearly. And then over 150, you really can't think as clearly. So when I'm talking, telling my goalkeepers, like, hey, I know that your defender should know to do that, but they're sprinting their butt back on defense right now, and they're not going to remember that that's what they should do because that heart rate is elevated. So in that same sense, we don't think as clearly when our heart rate is up. And also another thing is that stress hormone cortisol, right? So um, doing using breathing, using uh, meditation or mindfulness practice um, is shown to bring stress hormone cortisol down. Like it actually reduces the production of it in our body. Um, it also reduces blood pressure and uh, also... Um, um, I just blanked on the other one. We're talking about heart rate. We're talking about blood pressure. We're talking about cortisol. But basically, there's another uh, stress hormone that our body produces that it also lowers. And I just geek out because you can't argue with the physiology. Like, you can't argue with actually taking these tests. Another thing it does is it actually uh, regulates uh, heart rate variability. Now, heart rate variability is when something surprises you or something comes at you that you weren't anticipating. Even for academics, it could be a pop quiz. You know, for something on the field, it could just be something that you didn't expect. And so uh, that heart rate can jump, right? Which essentially that heart rate jumping, it's kind of that panic moment. And 
people who participated in six weeks of mindfulness, their heart rate variability when kind of like scared for a second, it actually came back to normal significantly more quickly. Like they had more control of their own heart rate, which I think is nerdy cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so how excited you get about it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, that's what Aaron knows. I love to geek out on this yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I, it was, again, mindfulness wasn't, it wasn't something that I was even on my radar as far as something to um, research. I, I was aware of it, you know, I was aware of it, you know, through um, pro athletes and other things, but I hadn't really, I, I was kind of like, well, everyone kind of uses their own thing. But then when the science, because irrefutable science, um, which, I think it's outstanding. So, and then using it with my own athletes, just seeing um, the great results with them. It's just, it's just been exciting uh, in my classroom, using it with my students, seeing their stress levels coming down, their anxiety coming down. It's just really exciting to actually see it in with our own product and in our own lives, as well as, you know, in the research. Yeah. It, it, and it must kind of be nice that you can kind of like you safely experiment with different things without, you know, causing harm to anybody. Uh, when you think it's funny that you bring up, you know, the, the young, uh, I always call them millennials cause that's what everyone does, but it's, you know, generation Z and everything like that. But, you know, my peers and, and even me now becoming a manager and having people under me, those are, those are things that you really have to be conscious of. It's a, it's a very new, mentality of of how to run a workplace how to run a sports team um everything about that so you know it doesn't have to just apply to sport which is what i find so interesting it, it applies to business um to to your workplace what i'm curious to ask about you you mentioned how you're using it with your students what are some things because i know you um here in ottawa uh, where i'm from um ottawa u before the pandemic um was having a crisis with you know students and, and suicide um you know it's a it's a very anxious time what are some of the things that you're doing with your students in the classroom if you don't mind sharing um that seem to be working and helping them out yeah so this semester one of my classes um it's psychosocial dimensions of kinesiology basically it's the sports psychology and the sociology of sport kind of mixed together. And so in that class, we um, actually are doing our adult program. So the Mindful Project adult program, our class meets three days a week. And so we're doing the program three days a week. And, and uh, so we uh, um, essentially, it's uh, giving them the foundations, uh, foundational elements of mindfulness. Um, also, Aaron mentioned earlier the growth mindset and essentially it's giving them kind of a curriculum to learn how to think differently because essentially what study shows with mindfulness is that you know that the concept of non-judgment um, and even being in the present moment it helps bring our stress down because we view things differently and so it's essentially helping them look at their own world differently uh, one of my students she was taking a class that she said i'm horrible at the subject and she was really you know not looking forward to it and uh, when it came to the first test, uh, she said that before she sat down and she said, basically, just breathe in, breathe out, and said, just focus on one question at a time. And she got a very high B, and she's struggled to get C's in this before. And right now, she's, I just talked to her the other day, and she said, I am like at an A minus right now. She was so excited. Um, and she's in, in our class. Um, doing our program three days a week and so essentially it's giving that each the way the program works is we have a little cartoon we have some cartoon characters that uh, share the information 
and they kind of give the concept for the week. Each week we build on a curriculum as far as giving them the tools to be able to handle what's going on in their daily life and be able to better use mindfulness in their life. So we have a little cartoon that introduces the subject um, and then we have a guided audio which is Aaron's soothing voice <laughs> that uh, basically helps them with their breathing and then also uh, some imagery and applying the technique of that day. And then we have a journal that they reflect in. Mm. Um, and so that's twice a week and then on the, the third day is like a review and then we also do mindful coloring and uh, it may sound kind of silly to say mindful coloring but uh, Aaron's uh, sister actually made these awesome designs and we have you know so we play music that uh, uh, another uh, friend of ours created for us and actually no Aaron made the music I take that back Aaron did the piano and uh, so essentially my students you know when the music changes we have to, you know you color with a different color when you hear it go faster, color a different color when it goes slower. And just being able to focus on the changes in the music takes your brain from anywhere else. And it just basically relaxes it and it gives it just that, that mental break that we have such a hard time doing. So yeah. that's kind of in the nutshell what our program is and what I've been doing with my class uh, this semester. That's super interesting. Uh, and I love the incorporation of arts, uh, music, of you know, coloring cartoons that, you know, it, it takes me to a, a bunch of conversations I've had with previous guests about um, the connection with arts, the arts and, and mental health and, and all these things and how you use them all together. It's super, super interesting. Um, you know, go ahead. Oh, yeah. And uh, we actually did that intentionally. Like, that's something that as Aaron and I were sitting down and deciding, well, how we learned to this, this program to look, we looked at the research as far as the art-based side of it. Some people respond really, really well, especially kids from more troubled backgrounds. Um, the research has shown that they really connect with, with the art. And some of us connect with it regardless of our background, but it's another way of expressing ourselves and connecting with mindfulness. And just even having the cartoons, having the audio, having the reflection, all of it um, is intentional because part of my doctoral program was learning about learning. And so we basically, the, the more ways that you can put something together, so you can hear it, you can read it, you can see a cartoon of it, actual visual, uh, reflecting on it, imagining it, listening to it, um, and then writing. So basically all of the things that we're doing are intentional so that we create what's called durable memories. Durable memories are those memories like of that that jingle, you know, when you were a kid of that advertisement that you like hear something and all of a sudden you're singing this thing that's been in your head forever. The durable memory is something that basically is there and it doesn't leave. And so that's what we're trying to do with our program is to create something that is a durable memory so that people can use it whenever they need to use it and not be like, oh, that's great. I'm learning this. But then I forgot when it's time, when the time came that they needed to use it. Right. It sounds like me in math for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Aaron, I'm curious, you know, when, when we were talking about professional athletes and, and training, you, you know, you, you think of people in the gym um, doing all sorts, you know, going for runs, all these different workouts, you know, uh, I'm interested, once you learn mindfulness, what did you take from it? And did you incorporate anything into your training? So I guess the question I'm asking, just to kind of condense it a little, what were some of the big differences of you're training before mindfulness and after mindfulness. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest difference is um, just was my focus. Um, and I mean, I think it was mindfulness, but also like, uh, and part of mindfulness and self-awareness, but kind of addressing my mindset. Um, 
I was very like outcome focused with a lot of my goals, uh, as far as like, I wanted to be the number one keeper for Canada. I wanted to win this. I wanted to do this. And a lot of them were outcome focused goals. Um, and the one thing about mindfulness, like be, really being in the moment is most of my goals became more like process oriented. So for example, like, you know, I consider myself one of the best in the world at dealing with crosses. And, you know, I've been asked, well, what's your secret? And I literally just pay attention to the spin on the ball. Every time I set my feet and I'm looking for the ball to come, I'm just looking for the seams on the ball. And that's it. Um, you know, if I'm going to go kick a ball and I'm doing a side volley, for example, like I'm going to, um, you know, put my short point my shoulders to the direction I want the ball to go. So um, I just became much more in the moment. Like even like when you go kick a ball, you know, like, um, you know, my dad has been my coach for a really long time and he'd always be like, look at the ball. Cause he's obsessed with golf. And he's like the best golfers in the world. Look at the ball, like look down at the ground and the ball already gone and they're still looking at the ground and then they look up and, but it's exactly the same. You know, you, you look at where you want to hit the ball and it just actually like, focus directly on the one thing that I'm doing and um, just really being in that moment and noticing those small details um, just kept me right there. Um, and having said that, I, I felt like more in control of my body. I didn't feel like things were um, a fluke or a coincidence. Um, I just felt uh, just more in tune, I guess, with what I was doing. And so that was the biggest I would say the biggest difference that I felt, not immediately, but I just kind of started realizing, oh, when I focus on this, it works every time. So um, it was a shift, but um, yeah, it was pretty significant. And I, I do feel like, um, you know, one thing I wanted to add uh, when Rachel was talking is just um, the thing I love about mindfulness is like, it, it's different for everybody. And sometimes like I love art, and if I have like had a busy day and my brain is overloaded and I have a busy day every day, so <laughs> my brain is always overloaded and I like sit down at a sketch pad and I draw for like 20 minutes and I don't think for a second and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was speaking with my aunt yesterday who's a musician and, uh, you know, she's like, when I'm playing the guitar, I don't think about anything else. And like the, the state of flow or the zone, it just shows up differently for a lot of different people. And um, a part of the program, you know, like we just want people to feel empowered to try different types of mindfulness and see what works for them because we're all so different. And, um, you know, I'm now in the habit of listening to this loving kindness meditation before sleep and I'm uh, practicing like gratefulness and a lot of these states of mind that when I'm doing mental training with the national team, that's what we're trying to replicate. So um, that's why I feel so lucky to be an athlete because I get to practice these different tools like in sport, uh, but they are for, like you said, in the business place, they apply everywhere. Yeah. It's the wow. Episode number two, this is like going back when I still had them in, in person, um, which is incredible uh, to think that it was, it was a year ago, this was happening, but uh, my guest, uh, she, she's tremendous and, and such a strong voice on social media. So we talked a lot about branding, but we also talked a lot about cannabis and she's someone who's a kind of, I guess, a cannabis advocate, but she mixes that, you know, with business, with, uh, with her, her kind of online persona, which can be 
sort of scary and, and a bit of a challenge because society, even though it's legal, especially in Canada, we're, we're not all the way there yet. And, and we still have traditional views of what a stoner is and can people truly produce. So um, unfortunately with COVID, they, she had to uh, shut down um, her women who weed, which was a tremendous organization, which we talked about, um, but they, they have ceased that since the pandemic. But um, she is a, a personal brand specialist. Uh, please reach out to her if you're looking to increase your voice and business on social media. And uh, she's episode number two. So please give it up for Reagan Bradley. So Yeah, well, I mean, like, let's get right into the, the pot subject because that in itself, you have so much of that differing points of view. And, and I know we, we weren't going to get into the science of it, but... Um, I know. I, I know. Before we got into you, you talked about listening to Rogan. Did you ever listen to the one? It was like the pot debate. And no, had I Dr. didn't. I uh, He's Canadian, actually. Doctor something Hart. And then there was another guy, and it was talking about you know the good and bad and stuff. And even in all that, I'm like, I don't know, like who to. Well, more stuff is like coming out that right. isn't positive about it. I read something that was pretty shocking. People are amazing and they send me articles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like, did you know this? Did you read this? And I'm like, oh, fuck, I didn't read that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I read about this one. Um, I don't have the name of it, but there's this one new disease that's like coming up where if you excessively use cannabis and you um, like every single day all the time to like self-medicate, you like mess up some receptors in your brain like here I am like I'm not I'm not I don't have a science background yeah. so I'm getting like very generic with it and it causes you to like have excessive puking and to the point where you like dehydrate yourself to death oh my god I know the case it's like so rare but I read that I'm like that's kind of scary <laughs> well I mean but then at the same time you hear about all the positive yeah benefits of it right like I think when you look at it as a whole you know, no matter what we ingest in our body, there's pros and cons. You take Advil, for instance. Like, f water could kill you, right? Like, everything ha can have a negative effect. So, like, that's, I mean, while, yes, that is scary. I think it's always it's important rare. to put into yeah, exactly. yeah, perspective that, like, uh, that, you know, it, do the, I guess it's do the pros outweigh the cons. And that's, like, I don't know. I've seen people who've smoked weed all their life and you'd never know the wiser. I've seen people who've smoked all weed all their life and like they're basically useless. You know, right? like I've, it, I've and seen And I think it really both. just depends on the person too. Yeah. Like um, with cannabis, I forget where my train of thought was going there. <laughs> <laughs> but the woman that we're really trying to target um, with the company that I have, Woman Who Weed, um, these are professional women. So these right. are women that have careers and, you know, maybe use cannabis to chill out after a really long day at work. Mm -hmm. Or it could be someone that, you know, has chronic back pain. Mm -hmm. Our co-founder our co of Woman Who Weed, she doesn't do any type of CB, um, THC strain. So that's where you have the um, psychoactive components. It's only for pain and pain management. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different use cases for it that I don't think we can say, like, is it positive, is it yeah. negative? But if you also, you could look at it in, like, the way that it's the benefits of it, but you could also look at cannabis at, like, what it's replacing, right? Like, we know for a fact alcohol is so bad for you. It's terrible for your liver. You can become an alcoholic, right? There's mm -hmm. just 
going down the alcohol path is like a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. But if you replace that with cannabis, what what are the effects on society, right? Like, yeah. what what would happen if there was, you know, prohibition on alcohol and not on cannabis and everyone smoked weed and no one drank? Would there be any, like, DUI cases, right? Like, I wonder what the world would look mm-hmm. like. I think it'd be a lot more chill. It'd be way more <laughs> funny, just be like, hey, like, it's all good. Vegas would be, uh... <laughs> Yeah. Vegas be pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um yeah, no, it's it's an interesting thought. And um I've always been interested in, in the C B D stuff too because of the depression and the anxiety and, and the pain. Um what do you like typically gravitate towards to like a do you do like a mix? Are you into that like blue pineapple kush with like the sixty two percent THC like <laughs> Um, it depends on really like what my vibe is. What what I'm having oh, okay. so much fun doing right now is experimenting with the different types of cannabis mm-hmm. because before any of this was legal, you would, you know, pick up from some random dude. You wouldn't really know like what kind it was. Yeah, yeah. Indica, sativa, like we're now learning that those words don't even really matter. Mm. It's yeah, we, we can get into that a little bit later. Um, so now I'm kind of looking at like I'm starting to train myself a little bit more on the science of it and I'm starting to pick up strains to elicit a certain type of feeling I want to have. So one okay. I've really hmm. identified, um, I love it, it's called Rise by Tokyo Smoke and I use it in a vaporizer and I just, before I want to get creative and do like any creative writing or like caption writing, I'll like smoke a little bit of that and I'll just like get in the zone. Really? Yeah, yeah like it, I, I just love it for that. I kind of like, it's just a focus kind of cannabis. Um, Sometimes I have trouble sleeping, so I'll do um, specific strains for that that will, you know, like make me a little bit more tired. Those will usually have higher CBD contents. Um, And then the way that you consume it, like, affects the way that it makes you feel, too. So, like, a joint will make you feel different than if you smoke out of a vaporizer versus if you smoke out of a bong. Like, it's it's so hard to, like, give a recommendation of, like, you should do this Mm because everyone cannabis affects everyone differently mm-hmm. so people that have a lot of anxiety tend to stay away from strains with really high thc because they get a little bit too much in their head and that can lead to like panic attacks right so you never really know unless you try it yourself so it's a little bit scary because you're playing with russian roulette so yeah. my recommendation would be to anybody that's interested in trying it is to start really small so maybe buy like a pre-roll joint you can buy those for like as low as like seven dollars each. Take a couple puffs at it and put it down. Like you don't want to go all in. Don't and have to finish the whole. You thing. don't have to be a hero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just do what feels right. Mm-hmm. But people are always recommending me different types, and I'm always like playing around with them on my Instagram. I do reviews every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I do something that's way too strong, and I'm like, I'm way too baked to get in front of the camera again, so I'm probably just going to not. <laughs> and people message me like, yo, I want the review. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm too high. <laughs> like, no. Um, I find it weird, like, just off the top when we started talking about weed, you mentioned that you're like, that doing this, that you're not afraid to be controversial. I find it interesting that even though it's legal, it's still somewhat taboo. I guess you could say to talk about weed and talk about it in a professional sense. Yeah. It's funny though. It's funny because a lot of people feel that way. But now that they know that I'm like the weed girl or whatever, 
everyone feels super comfortable to come in and talk to me about it. Right. So it's almost like uh, I call it like coming out of the cannabis closet. Like the first person to be like, oh, like you do weed? Oh, yeah. oh, I do weed. <laughs> oh, we should probably do it together. Yeah. Right. And I've been trying to expose like, um, like my family to it a little bit more. Mm. So. I grew up with a family where, you know, I wasn't allowed to drink until I was 19. I had a curfew, like very, like not like super strict, but like pretty strict. Um, One time I got caught, you know, smoking cannabis and I got grounded and then it's legal. And then I have a conversation with my parents. I'm like, I think I'm going to start posting on social media about weed. Like prepare for that. Didn't like it at all. Oh, okay. But now the more that I'm doing it and the more that they're realizing like, Everybody else is coming out of the cannabis closet. They're a little bit more supportive. Yeah. So, so something that I did for Christmas is I um, bought like little CBD capsules and I put them in Christmas cards and I gave them to each of my grandparents saying, you know, I know you have aches and pains. Your knees probably hurt all the time. Like you've gotten this surgery. Try this. Have one. And if you don't feel it in an hour, try the second one. Let me know what you think. I'm waiting on the reviews from I was Grandma. Say, yeah. I'm waiting on the reviews from Grandma. Yeah. I remember, like, I know uh, <laughs> the first time I was caught, I was 12, <laughs> smoking weed. Uh, so that was a that was a good time. Um, but I remember I started working at a gas station when I was 16, um, and we sold rolling papers. And the amount of people, I mean, small town, but the amount of people I knew coming in to buy rolling papers... Like, I was like, you all smoke weed? What? <laughs> right? Like, people, my friend's parents, uh, people I knew, like, through hockey, teachers. Interesting. Like, Interesting. I, again, small town vibes, but so many people. And this was before it was legal, by the way. Uh, so many people I knew smoked weed. I was like. I think a lot <laughs> more people than everyone thinks yeah it's like one of those things like no one ever said they did other than with their friends who they smoked weed with and i think also like people are becoming more comfortable talking about it but like people don't want to like post pictures of themselves doing it just like people don't want to post pictures of themselves drinking right like you can kind of compare the two sometimes Mm -hmm. depending on what your use case is for it right Mm -hmm. but like i would allow a picture to go up with me with a beer but i i i still and I'm pretty cool, like, with it. I still don't think I would allow myself with, like, a bong. Yeah. To go up on, like, to put that out. I'd be like, mm, maybe not. Well, even for That's myself, I, I've been a little, like, conscious about it, too. I'm like, okay, I've done the vape. But I haven't really posted any videos of me smoking. I don't know about the bong, though. The bong's too much, not the bong. Yeah. Right? So it's... But why? Yeah. Like, really, right? why? Yeah. Like, you'd, at, this, at the end of the day, you're... Taking cannabis and you're smoking it. Episode number one, the most listened to downloaded episode. What can I say about this guy? Uh, first of all, he gave me a shout out on CBC Ottawa Morning as one of the best podcasts uh, that people should check out over the holidays. So hello, if you're here because of that, shout out to this guy. Um, <laughs> we talked at the beginning of January and this is when COVID was just sort of being talked about in China. It was just getting in the news. And it's funny that, you know, we talked about COVID. And if I asked if he was worried and we go into it a little bit and, and how, you know, there's no point of worrying. Uh, we're ready for it. 
Um, so it's funny to go back and listen in hindsight to it. Um, but in this particular clip, we talk about his podcast, which has been an absolute go-to for me, this pandemic, uh, especially with COVID-related uh, info. He's had some awesome podcasts with some of Canada's top epidemiologists and, and pandemic specialists like uh, Isaac Bogosh and, and others. And, you know, he he's bringing it. He is a legend now in podcasting and his voice throughout this pandemic has been pragmatic. It's been realistic. It's been firm, um, looking for a balanced approach between, you know, taking the virus seriously and also, you know, the needs of business, which we've talked about on this podcast this year on the needs of mental health and then on the, you know, the needs of wellness. And I've just, I appreciate him so much. Uh, he has a podcast. It's called Solving Healthcare. He's a palliative doctor and an ICU doctor, and, and that's what we kind of talk about in this in this clip. Um, what? Just I can't say enough good things about him. The most listened to episode this year was my man, Doctor Quadro Caramenting, and and solving healthcare because I think that's an important topic in a, a lot of different areas, and it's a big topic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I'm sure everybody with their own related experience has a different opinion on it, right? If I go to the hospital be- with cancer-related things, I'm going to have an opinion about that. People have their opinions about men- the mental illness part of it. We talked about it a little off the top, but let- let's go a little bit deeper. You're, you're, you're publishing these papers. Nothing's being done. Now you have this podcast to to get word out and and more. Like, what are some of the main things that you're really trying to tackle in this in this podcast? Like, if you were to pick out, like, three, four themes that you're like, okay, these are, like, some big inefficiencies, I think that can be managed or, in my opinion, would really help mm-hmm. fix the system. Mm-hmm. Like, what would those types of things be? Yeah, I love the question because it's not an easy one, but... I got I got I'm going to come from my bias like my world. Absolutely. Okay? One of the the crazy amount of resources goes into intensive care unit. So our patients take up about 1% of the gross domestic product, okay? And a lot of the patients that come through do not benefit from an intensive care admission. IE if you're if you know your grandma comes in and to the intensive care unit and she tells me my goal is to get back home and to be functional a lot of times that's not possible or sometimes even to uh live independently in general or even to ever leave the icu that is my goal often that is not attainable and quite often we know it as clinicians but yet the will still bring in patients that won't benefit from icu care so I'll, I'll give an example, um, like, uh, obviously this is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, hypothetical, hypothetical situation, yeah, hypothetical, scenario, but a common one, 95 year old woman from a nursing home who's demented, doesn't recognize her family, can't eat on their, on her own, has documented that she would not want to be even transferred out of the nursing home for care. You know, if she was sick, just palliate me and, and allow me to die peacefully in the nursing home. She, she's found to be, you know, uh, have decreased level of consciousness. You'll get somebody on the phone to the family saying, 
panicking, saying, oh, we need to transfer to the, to the eMERGE. She's not breathing well. She's unconscious. Family feels pressure to bring the patient into hospital. They go to hospital. They get intubated and put a breathing tube in, all these procedures, poked and prodded to just try and maintain her life. At $3,000 a day minimum in the intensive care unit, for care that she doesn't even want. And if we were to have better conversations with our with our patients, with our loved ones, saying, what would you really want near the end of your life? This would save the system millions. Like, we're about to publish a study where we, there was about 12 patients in, in, at the Ottawa Hospital who's, um, we've, that were taken to the consent capacity board. So what that means is the patient has expressed wishes that they don't want aggressive care, but the family's insisted that they get aggressive care, so care that they don't want. Right. So we end up going to a tribunal and saying, making our, making our case, and these are 12 patients that have gone through that process. Those, those 12 patients that we're about to publish cost the system $8 million. 12 patients. Just 12. Because a length of stay, I forget, is about three to four months on average in the hospital. Um, they're in the most expensive area in the hospital. And if, and if I'm not, and actually all of them had, all of them end up passing away. And so they're receiving care that, once again, they don't even want, and it's costing the system millions. This is a problem. You know, it's just literally burning money. And, and it's not, and I, I don't want to come across incentives to say it's, not, it's all about the money. It's they're suffering. They're, right. they're going through all these procedures, even something on, as routinely as suctioning somebody through their breathing tube. You know, where you feel like you're suffocating at least three or four times a day, being poked by, you know, to get blood work on a regular basis, to be able, not even to be able to scratch your nose because you're tied down, being extremely thirsty and not being able to do anything about it. They're going through all this because of our lack of uh, communication and our lack of addressing these higher level issues. It's crazy. Mm. And in the same time, we, like, I, we aren't funding necessarily all the social workers that we could that would be so valuable in an intensive care unit, physiotherapists that could help get the patient out of bed and get them stronger stuff that patients actually care about. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. And so this is like I, maybe I should have started off this way. This is what's drove what drove my whole research like program is when I experienced. I was, I was, uh, I think I was still training. Saw this patient where he he was a, he got into a car accident and uh, ended up with a tracheostomy and was really reliant on physiotherapy to help out his lungs. And we were doing such great work, and we were at an era where more and more healthcare cuts were happening, and so physiotherapy going to a long weekend. Physiotherapy is not available on the weekend. He gets a pneumonia and plugs off his lungs. Now needs to go back in the intensive care unit, needs to be back on a ventilator. And he's like three weeks setback because of healthcare cuts. These short-term solutions that create more long-term problems. And I'm like, this is insane. 
this is absolutely insane. We got to do better. Like, we got to, like, figure out how to address this. Mm-hmm. So that's what started the research program. That's what, you know, my first even one of the main themes in our first few episodes is futile care and the impact it has on, on you know, society, the patient, uh, the caregivers. Like, the other thing that we don't talk about enough is the impact on the healthcare professionals. Like, taking care of someone where... Like, I'll give the story, uh, Margot, if you're listening, <laughs> forgive me for saying the story uh, again, but I was I was training still, and we were taking care of a patient that was elderly and that was dying, but family still wanted us to keep going. And, and I saw her, she was crying in the right beside me. And I'm like, Margot, like, what's going on? And she's like, every time I walk in that room, I feel like I'm torturing that man. It's It's awful. I, I can't I can't do this. And these are the people that are providing amazing care that are in this game to try and make patients better and to alleviate suffering and we're we're not putting them in position to do that. Mm-hmm. It's there's so many layers there from like uh the impact of of what we're doing. And so that was a huge driver for the the show, the the research program and I mean, if I had to, if you asked me one thing that would make a huge difference, better communication, talking about end of life earlier, more palliative care involvement earlier on, um, I think these things could uh, have a massive impact on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Plus the 90 other things that we talk about on the show. <laughs> but like, if you ask me to put a finger yeah. on some shit, yeah. like that's that's my huckleberry. Yeah, right I there. remember my mom always saying, as I mentioned before, my, my mom's a nurse. Um, and she always said, you ask her, any of her friends uh, of nurses that when we, it's our time to go, do not put us on life support mm. and never really got into details why, but this is a, like, it would seem they, they see all this, they do all this and yeah. they're like, fuck that. I don't want that done to me. Yeah. Like if it's my time to go, I want to go peacefully. I don't want a tube yeah. jam, a tube in my throat and sitting there suffering for like the last days of my life. Exactly. And like, to be honest with you, I like to just to the listener, what we're saying is, or what I'm saying is if you're going to benefit from all that, that's awesome. Like, of course go through it, you know, like, but there's, Oftentimes, where it's clear to the clinicians, they're they're voicing it. It's clear to the patient. It's clear to even yourselves if you if you ask the question. But it comes down to like either I don't know. Sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's on us to the clinicians because we're we don't want to address. You know, we don't want to address it. Like mm-hmm. I'll give you an example too. Like there are times where I will go on. Uh, award see a patient on the ward that has like a late stage cancer stage four pancreatic cancer for example and i'll be the first one to tell them that they have a terminal illness you know like they you know like mm. their oncologist hadn't brought this up or either or maybe if they did bring it up it hadn't registered but for, quite often it's it can come to a shock to or to the patient or the family and that's like shame on us man like there's like there's is a um, like clinicians are often worried about ruining a relationship by being too pessimistic or whatever. Right. But the problem is, 
if you're not being accurate or you're not being uh, absolutely forthcoming, maybe that daughter in Australia, they might never see that daughter in Australia now. You know what I mean? Because they thought they still had months to, or years to live. Instead of having that awesome connection where that daughter from Australia comes in and they get to talk about good times and, and, and maybe spend more time with each other than they, they, they were planning on. And so right. like you're, you're taking something away by not being upfront um, in terms of the prognosis and stuff. And so, you know, it's a huge problem. And um, But once again, Ryan, if I were to fix, if I had to fix one thing, it would be around that issue. Right. All right, there it is, folks. The top 10 episodes uh, of 2020. Most listened to, most downloaded. Thank you for listening. Thank you for everything for 2020. I can't wait. I already have episodes lined up for 2021, so we're, we're heading into the year strong. And I can't wait to, you know, increase the episodes, the the quality as I continue to learn and continue to work on my my hosting and interviewing. And uh, I, I think 2021 is going to be a big year. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking out with me. If you want to follow us, Life in Red podcast on Facebook and Instagram, Life in Red Pod on Twitter, and lifeinredpodcast.com. Ladies and gentlemen, all the best to you. Happy New Year. Uh, hopefully this year is going to bring us the end of COVID and the pandemic with this vaccine. And uh, you know what? Drop me a line. Thank you for your continued support. All the best. I appreciate you. Mwah. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit